Well, I was about three and I have an older brother. He's 13 months older than me and, but he's shorter and smaller than me and a little more timid than me. So I was bossier. I still am bossier, unfortunately, but, um, we lived with our biological mom and she was moving state to state, changing her name and social security number. Of course, I didn't know that when I was three, but, um, we ended up from moving from Chicago, Illinois, and we ended up in Nevada because in Nevada, it is legal to be a prostitute. And my biological mother was one of the very first prostitutes at the Mustang Ranch outside of Reno, Nevada. But she also worked on her own. Um, and so as little kids, my brother and I saw her with what we would call uncles, lots of different men that would keep coming around. Um, and they would, you know, do the prostitution thing. And then they would get high or drunk and be pretty violent. So the police were called a lot and we ended up in the hospital a lot and stuff like that. But we were pretty used to it and we didn't think that there was really anything wrong with that. We thought that's kind of normal, right? And um, I remember... So just uh, to stop you for a second, uh, when you say you called them uncles, did you actually believe they were your uncles or...? Well, I, I was three, so I didn't really know what an uncle was. Okay. So. I just knew that they were somehow some sort of family, but then they were, you know, having sex with my mom in front of me. So I didn't think that, I, <clears throat> I didn't think I was supposed to be there for that. So that actually happened in your presence sometimes? Yes. Wow. Yes. And so, um, and then they would get drunk or high and then get violent and then not all of them. Some of them were nicer than others. Um, but I mean, like I remembered a guy named David. I remembered a guy named Louie. They were pretty regular. They came a lot of the times. David was the one that was really pretty violent and um, always the cops would end up coming and either taking us to the hospital and taking him away or uh, just taking him away, depending on how it went, but he kept coming around. So my biological mom's name is Terry and Terry would go and work. She, we lived in motel rooms. So I remember like this is in the seventies. So I remember bright blue doors and bright orange doors. It's like, cause they were different, you know, on different floors. And, um, so she would get people, we lived in motel rooms. And so there were other people who lived in motel rooms. And now as an adult, I realize that a lot of the people who live in the motel rooms are people who are kind of, you know, druggies and stuff like that. But of course at three, I didn't recognize any of those things. Mm -hmm. So, um, <clears throat> she would ask these people to watch us. And of course she'd be like, well, I've got to go, you know, do my shift at work. And can you watch my kids and, and I'll be back after my shift. Well, she didn't tell them her shift lasted for three days. So they thought she was going to be back in like eight hours. And then they had these two unruly kids who were running around everywhere. Um, and she didn't show up for three days. So 
it ended up that um, the manager of the hotel called the police and just told them to come and get us because DHS had already been involved so many times because mm -hmm. of the the men and all the different her leaving all the time we already had a caseworker and and stuff like that and so he just said you know hey we need you to come and get these kids because nobody else wants to watch them so let's get them so they did so that's how we got out of there just out of curiosity how did the hotel manager figure out that you were left there alone we were running around a lot and <clears throat> Um, one of the reports that I have read as an adult said that I was outside for a week in the same dress and just went, to, you know, talking to different people, seeing if they had any crackers or any food or anything like that. Um, but I was not an unhappy child. Even when I looked at the reports, the, the social workers were like, they can't be being abused at all because, you know... Tracy asked me if I if I wanted crackers and they tried to play cards with me and they you know So I was always pretty upbeat. I didn't think like I said, I didn't think there was anything really wrong with it I just yeah. didn't like my uncles Yeah, so. well as a kid you only know what you see. So yeah, that's what's normal uh, When did you start realizing that wasn't normal? Well, I knew that I mean ever since I was little I knew the sex thing in front of me was wrong I knew I was not supposed to be there for that. I didn't quite know exactly what was going on, but I knew I wasn't supposed to be there for it. So, and in fact, one time I told Terry, I was like, I am going to tell on you. And she just looked at me and she was like, well, who are you going to tell? And I thought, that is a good point. I have no idea who I'm going to tell. <laughs> but when I figure it out, you are so, so dead meat. But yeah, I know. So, but I did know it was wrong. So, and I, I guess with the the angry men and stuff like that, I just didn't like that. It, I didn't really think of that as wrong. Mm -hmm. I just thought, yeah, I don't like that. When the police got you from the uh, hotel, <clears throat> what? What was that like? What happened? I remember um, we were scared. Me and my brother were really scared. And we were we were like, we thought the police were our friends, but, and they only came to get bad people. So I couldn't figure out why they were looking for me because I didn't think I was bad. So we actually hid underneath the bed in, the, in our room. And when the policeman came, I don't know why, but I guess maybe just because I was little, you know, they wear those baton things on the side. I thought mm -hmm. it was like a sword. So I was like, oh my gosh, they got a sword. And it was nighttime, so they had their flashlight because we had the lights turned off and we were hiding mm -hmm. under the bed and um, was trying to get me not to give us up. But I was afraid that they were going to find us anyways and... I started coughing, so they found us, and then they just took us to some people's house that had other kids, and we just stayed there. But they kept us together, so. Yeah. Was your brother mad at you for that? Oh, yeah. 
But I've always, I was always the bigger one. I was the bolder one, and I was the bossier one. So yeah, he can get mad all he wants, but still gonna do it. Yeah. So. So what did you think when you were at the, the new house? I mean, in that year we went through five different foster homes, so they were all different. Um, I didn't feel there was only one that I really felt uncomfortable with. Um, and that's because they had so many other kids and the man was really mean and you know I just I knew I was gonna I wasn't safe there mm -hmm. but um, and then another foster home I love the lady that was in charge of us there but one night in the middle of the night or it seemed like the middle of the night the police came and she was like run kids and like everybody was running but they caught us and so we uh, ended up in a different house. So we went through, like I said, five foster homes in a year. And the last foster home, the second to last, these people had a lot of money. So we got big wheels and I got really good clothes. We were having fun. And um, one day the social worker came and said, well, you guys have to move. And I was like, you know what? I'm tired of moving. You know, uh, I remember saying, uh, well, are, are we going to stay at this next place? Are we going to live with these people or what? Are we going to have to move? And she said, you're going to, you're going to live there forever. Looking back, I know she was totally lying to me, but I totally believed her. And on our way to this um, place, she stopped at this big giant building in the, I don't know where, it seemed like it was in the middle of the desert, but we were in Nevada, so everything was dry out there. And um, it was pretty cold inside and stark. There was like concrete everywhere and just not like those white blocks, you know, that they built the building out of. That's what was everywhere in this building. Mm -hmm. And we ended up going through several doors and when we went into this room, there was my mom. So, oh, we were like, oh my gosh, guess what? So we lived with these people and they were, and we were just telling her everything that was going on and all the stuff that had happened since we last saw her and everything. And we were having a great time. And um, <clears throat> it seemed like no time had really passed, but I'm sure we were there for about an hour or so. I don't know. And um, the social worker said, okay, it's time to go. Let's go. You're going to go meet your new family now. And I was like yeah I don't really want to do that so I just turned and looked at my mom and I said you know Terry because she always made me call her Terry I never called her mom and um, so I was like yeah I don't really want to go with them so how about we just go back home and I saw her face just shut me out like she just closed off to me and looked away and she was like I can't take care of you I'm sick and I was like okay I am never gonna be like you and I am done with you so I grabbed that social workers hand and by I was ready to go and <clears throat> my brother was not he was crying and he wanted to stay and I was like, let's get out of here. Come on, we're going. 
So the new family that we went to, they were really excited to have us. They had like, they lived on a cul-de-sac and they had all the neighbors were there and they had, they were having a party because they were coming, we were coming to live with them. So I was like, oh, this is so cool. And that's who we ended up eventually being adopted by. Um, it took about almost four years for them to be able to adopt us, but, um, but that's where we ended up. It was pretty cool. Did you think that was your forever family? Yeah. I mean, as soon as they opened the door, by the way, I mean, my biological mom was pretty, you know, but my adoptive mom was pretty too. And I was just like, this is a new pretty mommy. Yay for me. <laughs> and so I just called her mom immediately. And um, her husband, I just called him dad. And that was great. I will say that when, like, they decided to spank me one day, I was like, uh, I don't know who you think you are, but this is not how this is going to go. In fact, I think I kind of hate you. But I discovered that that is exactly how that was going to go, and I needed to learn to fall in line. Yeah. I think that was probably the first time that I ever had to do that. So, yeah. Did you not have much in the way of discipline up until that point? <laughs> no, I imagine not. Maybe that's why we ended up going through five foster homes in one year. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say the people were rude. They were terrible people. But it could be, it might be, that I may have been a bit unruly. I don't know. I seriously doubt it, though. I'm so sweet. <laughs> Yeah. So what was your experience like with that family and how long were you there with them? Um, I lived with them till I was graduated from high school. I mean, that's where I ended up living. And I was really close to my biological mother. We were uh, not biological. I'm sorry. Adoptive mother. She was perfect for me. She was um, bubbly and happy and I don't want to say the word hyper, but she liked to move and do things a lot, and I love that. So, and she also loved music. One of the things that um, she helped me so much with was through music, because I remember when we first moved there, I was so angry, and when I got angry, I mean, I was so mad. I would just feel like I was gonna blow up. I just was so mad. And she told me, you know, first of all, I was confused about the whole spanking thing, right? Because they're like, I'm doing this because I love you, or this hurts me more than it does you. And I'm like, I'm the one crying. And can I hit you back? <laughs> and you know, these things were very confusing to me. So I remember when I would get mad, sometimes I would want to go beat the dog crap out of my brother. So I'd like start heading that way. And my mom would be like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going to go get a spanking. <laughs> She's like, you can't do that. And I'm like, well, then can you do it? Because I'm really mad and you need to fix this here. Something's got to give. And so <laughs> she, um, she got me this record from, it was called The Music Machine. And it was... Every single <clears throat> song 
that was on this record was about a fruit of the spirit. And it, I, the fruit of the spirit is actually one fruit, but in the fruit, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. So this record had a song about love. It had a song about joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. So that helped me. I thought, oh, I have to be responsible for what I'm thinking or how I feel or maybe not go beat somebody up. <laughs> so I'm, I have to pay attention to this and I have to control this. Mm -hmm. So that helped me a lot. So she, she loved music and listened to a lot of music and the way that she taught me to kind of get through things was through music. And so that gave you love for music? Yeah. So, um, when were you introduced to the Bible? Was Oh, as soon as I moved in with these new people. Okay. And um, they took me to church, and of course, I was like, oh, this, this sounds like something I can do. I mean, I want to go to heaven, so definitely don't want to go to hell. So I'm going to do that. That. I choose that. But also... <clears throat> Deep down in my heart, I just thought, you know, I really never wanted to be like my biological mom. And so if I could be really good at this religious thing, then I could prove that I was valuable because I didn't feel like I was valuable because my mom left and never came back. And so... I really got into the religion thing pretty, pretty heavily. And my brother did not. He started, I mean, like he would go, mm -hmm. you know, to church and stuff because we had to. But um, he started smoking pot when he was eight. And, you know, he struggled with addictions ever since. So by the time he was 13, he was getting in trouble because he was, you know, stealing stuff and mm -hmm. ended up in juvenile hall. And As you were growing up, how did you feel about your bio mom and your bio dad? Well, I never knew who my biological dad was. I was hoping it was Kurt Douglas because I knew my mom was a prostitute. So like there was a chance and I could maybe get some money if that was, and I thought, you know, you know, I probably should be famous if I'm not. So um, I entertained that idea or that thought process. I didn't really, really believe it, but I just thought that would be so much fun if that was the case. Um, but I figured he was one of those men that used to beat us up. So I never wanted to meet mm -hmm. my dad. And my, I didn't want to meet my mom because like she already told me she didn't care. Why do I need to like go see that again or talk to her again about it? I didn't want to have anything to do with either one of them. Yeah. So. Okay. You never did? You never thought about it or thought, <clears throat> I wonder, wonder what my mom's doing or anything? Oh, like no. I thought... No, I did not want to have anything to do with her. And in fact, Sean and I would argue about that because he wanted to find her and I did not want to find her. And um, for the same reason that I told you, I just don't think, I didn't think it would be good. I didn't think yeah. she would be a good person, so. Yeah. Were you ever reintroduced to your bio mom? Uh, 
eventually I was introduced to her. Um, well, when I was 29, my brother called me one day crying because he got a letter from my biological father. Um, it's easier to find a boy than a girl because girls change their name and stuff like that. And then since Sean had been in so much trouble, he had a record. And um, anyways, my biological father had hired several detectives throughout the years to, to try to find us. But this guy um, was able to pull up my brother's records and trace him. So my dad sent a letter to my brother saying that he's been looking for me for 26 years and um, he wanted to see if my, if my brother would get in touch with me and open up a line of communication. So he called me and he was crying and he said, oh my gosh, your dad wrote this letter and he's been looking for you. He knew me. I mean, he named me and he was so excited about it. And he was like, you've got to call him. And I was like, oh, I don't want to call him. And he was like, you have to promise me that you're going to call him. And I was like, Ugh, I will call him. So I hung up the phone with my brother and after, you know, he gave me the number and everything. And I dialed the number that he gave me. And this gentleman answered the phone. And I said, Hi, my name is Tracy Morton. It used to be Tracy Ewart. And prior to that, it was Tracy O'Malley. Apparently, you've reached out to my brother indicating you believe you're my biological father and you wanted me to contact you to open a line of communication, so I'm calling to see how I can help you. And Dad was like, I knew right then that it was you because you were always a bold little <laughs> But he didn't say that to me on the phone. Later, he told me that that's what he was thinking. Yeah. But um, he was very kind to me and um, tolerated my standoffishness and told me that um, he had been trying to look for me for 26 years and that he had a briefcase full of documentation that he had been trying to find me. And he, he had even gone on the Oprah Winfrey show as a guest to reach out to find me. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. And so he um, offered to come down. He lived in Chicago still. And he said that he kept his name in the phone book so that I could find him. Of course, I didn't know his name, so I would have never found him. But um, anyways, he drove down to meet me. And, um, <clears throat> and when he came down to meet me, he had that briefcase full of documentation that had all the DHS case reports. Um, and it had... He was wiring my biological mo mother money for um, child support to the state of Georgia, and I was a ward of the state of Nevada and adopted out, and nobody contacted him. So he found out where I was after I had already been adopted, which means that I had been a foster kid for three and a half, 
years already. And he, he also had letters that Terry had written him with photographs of me and my brother and our adoptive mom saying, hey, the kids are fine. See, I'm taking the picture. That's why I'm not in it. But they're doing good. You still need to wire money. So. I was kind of right about. She probably wasn't a very good person. Yeah. So. But it was awesome to meet my dad. And it was awesome to know that he had been looking for me for 27 years. And. Mm -hmm. Or 26 years, I guess. And. um <clears throat> What I found out was when he was 10, his mother died. And when his mother died, um, his dad left and said, you know, I can't take care of him. So he left my dad with his aunt and uncle. So my dad in the 50s had a different last name than his parents. Mm -hmm. And everybody thought it was strange. And he had to go through all that. So he didn't want me to go through that. Yeah. But um, what had happened is my biological mom had kidnapped me from the babysitter and because they got divorced. They didn't get along very well, you know, after a while. Okay. Um, and so. So they were actually married then. It wasn't, yeah. It wasn't just some person that she was hooking yeah. up with. Yeah. She was actually married to him. Okay. So she was married 11 times, though. Oh, wow. <laughs> You'd think he'd quit eventually. <coughs> I don't know. Have you ever seen the movie A Bee's Life? Mm-mm. <laughs> there's this one scene where there's this window, and the bee keeps going, maybe this time, maybe this time, and he keeps hitting the window. Maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this time. Maybe that's what she was doing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So... Uh, I can only imagine what it would be like, you know, when your your bio dad says that he's been looking for you and he shows you all that paperwork and you see how much trouble he's gone through mm -hmm. to find you. Yeah. It changed my whole perception of who I was. Um, and it's one of the things that I think is so awesome about who God is and how he works because... I was doing all the right things that looked right. Mm -hmm. Like everybody thought, you know, um, I loved music. I'm a great singer. So I got a lot of accolades and stuff for singing. And um, I was happy about all of those things. But I was trying to, all of those things are things that I was trying to um, use to validate who I was, where my identity lied. It lied in the abilities that I had or the perceptions that people had of me or how religious I could be because, you know, I'm totally worthy then. And so when people, because we all try to find a way to become significant or oh, yeah. to feel significant, and when we gather our identity from those things it will always get destroyed somehow. So I had this perception of myself that I was abandoned and that I was not worthy. I was not lovable. 
mm. even though I like talked myself out of it, you know, mm. you're a good guy and yeah, doggone it, people like you. Um, yeah, I still had that thought process in my head, and so when my dad brought that documentation and proved that he'd been looking for me all those years, I all of a sudden had a completely different and new identity. So that was really cool. And I thought I knew what was going on. And I did, sort of. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't the whole picture. It wasn't the truth. It was facts. The fact is, I was abandoned. The fact is, I was a foster kid. The fact is, I was adopted. But I thought that meant that I wasn't wanted. But that's not the truth. Yeah. So. So what changed in your life when you met your bio dad from a more logistic standpoint? Um, well, it took a while because I didn't trust him, but I didn't really trust men, period. Understandable. So it was good. It was good to see that he was faithful to me, um, even as an adult, because I was going through some pretty hard stuff when I met him. Yeah. <clears throat> So, um, the other thing is, you know, a lot of times I know that my dad feels like he got gypped, like he, they, you know, the state of Nevada took us away, took me away from him. And then, you know, he didn't get to raise me and it was just, you know, he hates that. But I was 29 when I met him and nobody else except for him could have convinced me to forgive my mother because what she did to me was bad but what she did to him was worse and when he first met me because he didn't want me to just like leave he would tolerate me talking crap about her mm -hmm. and eventually one day he was just like okay okay all of that happened so now what? What are you going to do with that? Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I think we should find her and give her a wedgie. Okay. Or, you know, I don't know. I'm going to sit on my high horse and I'm going to complain, complain about it longer. But he told me that he had to forgive her in order to live. And he challenged me that he thought that's the only way that I would be able to live. Mm -hmm. And I was a Christian. I went to church. I went to Sunday school. I knew all of those things. But he saw, saw right through all of those things that I used to shield myself with other people and knew that I hadn't forgiven her. And he helped me do that. So... I mean, no, I wasn't raised by him and he didn't, he did see me when I walked and stuff because I lived with him till I was 18 months old. That's why he knew I was a bold little However, he didn't get to, you know, take me to school and all that stuff, but he taught me how to live. So that's really good. So, uh, 
Do you have a relationship with him now? Yeah, I talk to him today. Nice. I what, talk to him all the time. What about your adopted parents? Um, I am close, or I'm closer to them than I was um, when I got divorced the first time. Um, I, they were really disappointed and they didn't believe me about the things that were happening. So that made it really hard. Um, but -hmm. it was right after that happened. This is how cool God is. It was right after I lost that. I lost my church. I lost my family. I lost all of these different things that I thought made me important. And, um, and then that's when I met my, when my biological dad found me, it was three months after that happened. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's very interesting timing. Mm-hmm. Probably pretty good timing. Yeah. So, um, what about your brother? What was your relationship like with him? Um, and, and now we have always been pretty close in that, like, he's the only thing that was always there. Yeah. And, um, we might not do things the same, but I had his back and he had mine. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he might think I was a prude. I might think he was just a little off his rocker. Um, but we knew that we were what each other had. Yeah. So, um, we've been close and, um, not close sometimes because of his lifestyle choices. You know, addiction is a hard thing. I mean, no one, no one wins over the addiction when you're involved with a person who has addiction issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might want you to win. They might really, really, really love you as much as they can, but they a lot of times cave to the addiction. Yeah. Addiction's a hard thing to deal with. Yeah. It's a really hard thing to deal with. Um, So is your brother still battling addiction yes yes he is you still talk to him i haven't talked to him really in about a year um he's lived with me a lot and and i love him but i um i don't know that i've been actually helping him i think i've just i hate to say the word enabled because everybody uses that word but I've, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> helped him. <coughs> I have helped him continue his addiction. And I thought I was being really smart about stuff. Like if he asked for money yeah, and he said it was for, to pay the gas bill. Well, then I would just pay the gas bill and I wouldn't give him the money. But then he knew I was going to pay the gas bill so he could go ahead and buy the drugs or whatever so I wasn't being smart yeah but 
I mean, where there's a will, there's a way. If he wants the drugs, he'll find a way to get them. And if you give somebody money, it's none of your business what they use it for. You gave him that money, it's theirs now. Right. So it's it's up to him what he does with it. It's his his choices. Yeah, you can be a positive or a negative influence, but at the end of the day, his addiction is on him to deal with. Yeah. Obviously, your experience growing up with uh, the relationship between men and women has affected your idea of what that's like. Um, how did that affect your own personal uh, interests and endeavors to get into relationships? Mm. For me, it was, I mean, I've always been like, you know, in every grade, kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, I always had a boyfriend. But I was not like, a boyfriend is somebody that you think is cute that you might talk to every now and again. It's not like, I remember when I turned like 12 and 13 um, and I liked these boys that were older than me and like they would, you know, grab my hand to hold my hand. And I remember thinking, I am not ready for this. I don't want you to know. And then I would just fade into the darkness. Like I never wanted to see them again. And that was it. Um, so I was very, I just, I had really made my mindset pretty elementary in that I thought, if I don't sleep around with a bunch of different guys, then I'm not going to be used by men. <laughs> well, there's different ways that men can use women. It's not just all sexual, but um, somehow I thought that if I just... And, and it would... I sort of hate to say the word trigger, but it would trigger me when somebody tried to be like intimate with me in any way it would scare me and I would not really want that you mean like emotional intimacy physical intimacy both um <clears throat> few people in my life have ever tried to be emotionally intimate with me so I would be way more prone, prone to um, be okay with that. Um, but it was the physical, like, mm -hmm. that would sort of freak me out. But, I mean, like, eventually, you know, when I was almost 17, I dated this guy. And I don't know, how, it's probably because I didn't know it was going to happen that it was okay, you know, but he kissed me and I was like, oh, that was kind of fun. Let's do that. But only that. And that's where they would get mad at me because I only wanted to do that and they wanted to do so many more things. And I was afraid of that. Yeah. So I was a virgin until I got married the first time. So... So did you have a lot of anxiety about that? 
oh, when yeah. you were married? Um, well, <clears throat> I guess you could say I did, but I also thought that, you know, when you're married, you're supposed to, so. Mm-hmm. And my adoptive mom told me the more you do it, the better it'll feel. And I didn't think it felt good at all. So I was like, we better try this again and again and again and again. Let's try it this way. Let's do that. Let's do it. Oh, and then finally, after like eight months, I was like, okay, yeah, none of this is working for me. (laughs) I don't like any of it. (laughs) I'm done. (laughs) I'm just thinking, I, should we paint this beige? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. That's bad. It was terrible. But I did find out after I had actually been married twice and um, was after my second divorce. I was dating this guy and we had been dating for, I don't know, like three months. And I had not, you know, had sex with him. And I decided that um, I thought it would be okay to do that. So I remember on this one date, I had it in my mind. I mean, like I didn't tell him, but I was like, okay, this is gonna be, I'm good. I'm good to go. I'm gonna try this. And um, he was kissing me and, or I was kissing him back. I mean, I say he was kissing me, Mm -hmm. we were kissing. And all of a sudden he just, stopped and he pulled away from me and he said where did you go and I was like what are you talking about and he said where did you you, okay if you you have to stay here you left I feel that you left and I can tell you left and if you're not going to stay here and be in this moment with me here I don't want this and I discovered, oh my gosh, I've done that this whole time. But nobody noticed it. Yeah. They didn't care or, I don't know. They just didn't notice it. Maybe they just it. weren't observant. Yeah. And um, so then I consciously stayed present throughout the ordeal and it was fantastic. But prior to that, I thought everybody was lying about how great they thought it was. Yeah. I thought it was terrible. So. So I guess you were dissociating because of mm-hmm. your previous anxiety, I guess? Yeah. But I didn't know that. I knew I was supposed to, you know, when you get married, you're supposed to have sex. Yeah. Yeah, so I did. But I wasn't there. Did you have kids with uh, either or both of your husbands? Oh, I only had children with my first husband. So. Uh, Was that intentional? What do you mean? Like, were you planning to have kids or did it just kind of happen? Oh, no, I wanted to have kids. It was important to me to... um, yeah, I just wanted to have kids. So, I mean, 
it was planned and unplanned because we were just like, okay, let's stop doing birth control and see what happens. And I was pregnant like in 30 days. So, so, uh, how did you feel about raising kids after your childhood? Did, mm. Were there a lot of things that you're, you were anxious about because of that or things that you're like, well, I know not to do that or what? I felt pretty confident about it because, uh, like I said, my adoptive mom was fantastic. I'm a strong willed person and, but you also have to be careful with me because in some ways I'm fragile. You just don't know it. She was absolutely strong enough to make me toe the line, but she never crushed my spirit. And so she taught me how to live. She taught me how to control my mind. She taught me how to, she is a Christian and she spent every single morning at the butt crack of dawn. She was up. And she was reading and she was praying and she was listening to her tapes and her music and stuff like that. Every single day she sought the Lord. And that left a lasting impression on me. So I felt pretty good about I knew I'd be a I knew I'd be a great mom. Okay. So you're just taking example from <clears throat> your foster parents mostly? Mm-hmm yeah okay it's good that you had that example mm-hmm yes I'm very blessed the thing that I feel pretty passionate about is letting people know that I mean life sometimes just doesn't turn out the way you think it should and I don't know where we get these preconceived ideas of how things are supposed to be. Like, mm -hmm. it's, in, it's in us when we're just little. We're like, this is wrong. I mean, that's why I really well, do believe that we know from a very young age mm -hmm. what's right and what's wrong. But I think sometimes we think that we have to understand our life for it to be significant or for it to um before we can choose to accept the things that have happened and then decide what we're going to do with it mm -hmm. and i want people to understand and know and feel and see that there's hope that there's more to life than what they can see sometimes. Just like for 26 years, I thought a truth of some facts were the truth, the whole truth, but they weren't the whole truth. It was just part. And if I had been impatient, I mean, let's be honest, I am impatient, but looking back, I'm so thankful that I never came to the point where I wanted to end my life or I wanted to, and I would have never known that I had a father who was looking for me my whole life. Mm -hmm. I would have always had the perception that I thought I wasn't wanted, I was abandoned. Somebody forgot me or whatever. Hey, 
I was Joe Dirt. Can't you just turn the car around and come back and get me? <laughs> so, yeah.